This is Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the executive producer and co-host of the show. Joining me in the virtual studio is co-founder and principal co-host Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC. Connect with us via www.popupstudio.productions or follow and direct message me on Twitter at Greg Masters MPH, and that's Greg with two G's. On today's show, our guest is Dr. Sean Gregory, Vice President, Health Economics and Market Access for Cognito Therapeutics, a company developing a novel device-based approach to treating Alzheimer's disease. According to their website, Cognito Therapeutics Investigational Medical Device delivers non-invasive neuromodulation with the potential to improve outcomes in a range of neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, and is personalized based on individual brain responses. Do follow their work at Cognito Therapeutics via www.cognitotx.com and on Twitter via at CognitoTX. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Thanks so much, Greg and Sean. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Great to be here, Fred. Thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, interesting area we're going to discuss today, a little bit of digital therapeutics, et cetera. So why don't you start by giving our audience a sense of your background and um, the company? Sure. I'm delighted to be here with you, Fred. I'm Sean Gregory, Vice President of Health Econ and Market Access for Cognito Therapeutics. Here at Cognito Therapeutics, we're a phase three clinical medical device company focused on a novel neuromodulation mechanism for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease and potentially uh, myocognitive impairment, which is a little upstream in the etiology for uh, Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's obviously a big issue. How large is that problem in the United States now? Well, you know, Fred, there's about 6 million prevalent cases uh, by the latest CDC standards. And the real interesting component is as aging population increases, that's that figure is supposed to go to about 8.6 million by 2030. So we've still got a pretty steep rise in the incident cases that will be coming on board here over the next decade. Mm-hmm. I know, you know, I know in our family, I know of some individuals, friends, relatives, et cetera, who are living with Alzheimer's, really difficult situation for them and their families, obviously a huge impact on people. So as you're looking at this from a digital therapeutics approach, what sort of are you focusing on and what does the product do? Well, we have a novel mechanism of action that's focused on neuromodulation. And specifically, we have um, some observed uh, technology, observed research in the um, gamma frequency modulation space. And what we've observed in, particularly in cognition among individuals with Alzheimer's disease, is a lack of or a lower rate of 40 hertz gamma stimulation across the hippocampus, where we know much much of the cognition action uh, happens. And so we have a novel therapeutic, uh, and the the form factor is a a wraparound set of sunglasses inside of which have 30 hertz, excuse me, 40 hertz LEDs, uh, and a wraparound earphones during which we have an auditory stimulation of 40 hertz as well. And by being exposed to that an hour a day, we've been able to demonstrate some disease-modifying effects for Alzheimer's patients, mild to moderate Alzheimer's patients in our phase two data, and are about ready to go with our first patient in 
uh, for our phase three study for mild to moderate Alzheimer's. And when and so, what sort of improvements do you have you seen in the studies? Well, it's, this is what's, where it gets really exciting. We've got sort of three buckets, if you will, of outcomes that we've been looking at. Our primary endpoints are around cognition, but we also have included IADLs or activities of daily living to really understand the day-to-day improvements in functionality that might be resulting. And then there's some very specific neuroanatomy uh, results as well as some um, specific results on sleep as a particular symptom of of mild to moderate Alzheimer's. And so what we're trying to do is have primary endpoints that are meaningful scientifically to gain approval of the FDA, but then also the types of endpoints that can kind of contextualize for payers as well as patients and physicians, what what are the meaningful outcomes of uh, this therapeutic? And so when you talk about some of those outcomes and changes, I assume that the changes, you're seeing changes in the anatomy you talked about of the brain. So there are actually changes that can be measured in an individual's brain who's undergone this uh, approach? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is where we've had some exciting results that were just announced a couple of weeks back at AAIC in San Diego. Uh, we've been able to demonstrate that we have preservation of uh, brain volume, whole brain volume, and particularly white matter, again, in the hippocampus where we know the cognition action is happening. And if you, if just to sort of put it in perspective, uh, a normal aging adult over 65 loses about a half a percent of brain volume a year. Uh, an Alzheimer's patient, it would lose about two and a half percent. And in this phase two data, we see Uh, after the use of the device on device for 12 months, we see these uh, mild to moderate Alzheimer's patients losing about 0.6% of brain volume. So just a little more than average aging, but certainly not the 2.5% that you'd see in uh, an Alzheimer's patient based on today's therapies. And then that's associated with, I would assume, differences in cognition testing or of their functioning? Yes, absolutely. And that gets back to the primary endpoints where you're testing for uh, cognition using a variety of instruments, MMSE or MOCA in some cases, uh, and then using the IADLs, which actually are a broad, um, well-used in neurodegenerative disease uh, activities of daily living that talk about uh, and rate, if you will, or scale for individuals, their ability to uh, attend to those activities of daily living that are that are meaningful to them. Uh, and it, it, I think it really helps contextualize the benefit for patients. Uh, and then there's some very specific things that I mentioned, like sleep improvement. Um, we've got atigraphy uh, built into our studies, and we're looking at really market improvements in sleep, which we know have lots of downstream effects on not just cognition, but, uh, you know, mood and irritability and, mm-hmm. and nutrition, et cetera. Right. Some of our audience is not quite as exposed to some of these terms, et cetera. You know, we've obviously got a population health focus group and you're very sure. neurologically and science oriented. Could you define some of the terms like MOCA, et cetera? Sure. There's a variety of uh, neuropsychological batteries that rate cognition or decline in cognition uh, for individuals. And in fact, Fred, we had talked recently about the mini-cog assessment, which is a brief assessment that's part of the uh, annual Medicare exam for individuals on on Medicare, uh, which, speaking of population health, is is almost like a broad-based population health screening. In fact, individuals over 65 and on Medicare 
get that screening every year. And I think there's some data that shows that maybe less than one in five receive that assessment. And that's really the first uh, potential screening to indicate uh, problems with cognition that might lead to myocognitive impairment, any kind of dementia, and then Alzheimer's as a special case of dementia. And as you move along from uh, uh, normal screening to more disease-specific measures, um, th there are a variety of neuropsych measures in a normal workup, uh, neurological workup or neurological battery that help measure changes in cognition and then isolate those changes to, to very specific components of cognition, like this is a motor issue or this is an executive functioning issue. Um, this is more attuned to decision making. And so that helps a, a clinician be able to make um, a diagnosis. But then as we try to apply a treatment, allows us to basically measure, if you will. And I think of it kind of as the equivalent of going to get a lipid panel after you've initiated a statin therapy. You know, what is your LDL going to be over time? And many of these measures are the way that we would look for kind of measurement-based care outcomes uh, for neurologic disease. Mm -hmm. And you talked about this being specifically for people with mild to moderate cognitive impairment. And so that tells me that as a at not, I'm not a physician, but as a, as a physician or if you're in a population health program, you want to identify those individuals as early as possible. So I assume the way to do that is to ensure that the primary care doctor or the internal medicine physician or whoever's doing that annual wellness visit is actually doing that mini cog and, and taking that data versus having to go see a neurologist um, as a way to get the identification. C certainly. I mean, I think we're very advantaged certainly in over 65 Medicare uh, beneficiaries to have population-based screening. And so how do we raise the awareness? And you wonder if something like cognition uh, becomes uh, a new vital sign or, or an, at least something that is maybe elevated a little on the radar. They're gonna, there's, a more, there's probably more density of individuals uh, entering that morbidity as we have an aging population. And uh, so how do we kind of elevate the, the public health messaging there? So I think that that's really important. And it, it absolutely is an, inter, an intervene early type of strategy. Mm -hmm. And is this is this something where based on the data, I haven't looked at it, that we're possibly missing people and identifying them late? I think so. And I think that the if you um, look at kind of the profiles of sort of severity upon presentation or severity upon um, diagnosis, we do tend to see folks being diagnosed later in disease. And I think that that is, I mean, if you really start to think about it from this public health perspective, how would you set that up? If you're going to try to intervene earlier in the etiology, you try to figure out, I think, where the most sort of effective screening intercepts might be. Uh, and I think that raising the awareness of this at a primary care level would probably be important. There's probably not enough neurologists to do all the screening we would need. So you know, having the primary care uh, uh, opportunity, I think, would be key. Mm -hmm. And you may not have this information, but uh, I would assume, just based on everything else we know, that we see disparities in terms of this issue as well amongst um, people of color and, and other groups. Certainly. And, and I might think of it as, you know, on, on two dimensions there, there are some interesting uh, genetic predispositions. We know uh, concentrations of individuals, uh, let's say, carry the a APOE4 genetic variant. Um, there is uh, an early onset 
uh, cohort uh, among uh, Latina uh, populations, and it's known as the Colombian cohort. Um, but I think there's also a, the vector of um, social determinants of health that have um, that show up in terms of these disparities. So we know that there's a, a kind of a rural-urban break, particularly in um, outcomes post-diagnosis, and that might have some access to care issues associated with it. Uh, and certainly there are some communities of color that have um, some overrepresentations uh, of disease, and, and I think uh, would follow kind of the same uh, disparities you might see in other kind of, you know, broad-based disease screening programs. So I would assume as you move into the phase three trials in this, you look for as broad a population as you can get to demonstrate efficacy? Absolutely. Um, and, and we'll have uh, two phase three uh, um, events going on. One is our HOPE trial, and that is for mild to moderate Alzheimer's. That's our large trial that follows on our Overture, which is our phase two trial. Um, that will be a large multi-center uh, trial, and I think it does have the geographic, um, but also the um, ethnicity variation that we would be looking for to try to make sure it's, it's it, you know, it has the proper representation. Uh, and that's that that's the kind of the fun and the advantage of having um, a multi-site type of design. Uh, we'll also have a phase three in myocognitive impairment, which will have a little bit more of a real-world design. Um, and both both of these have been um, uh, announced previously, but what we're excited about doing is on the heels of a, a mild to moderate Alzheimer's uh, set of results to be able to show, again, kind of earlier in the etiology, uh, an indication uh, for a mild cognitive impairment as well. Well, it's, you know, it's fascinating you raised that. I just read, a, I didn't read the study yet, but I've, I've seen the abstract on it regarding a, um, a study of cognitive impairment later in life associated with the experience of racism. Interesting. Which would just be fascinating sure. to see, obviously a major, major issue, uh, but uh, something that perhaps uh, has some relevance here as well. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think that we, there's, there's some interesting evidence in behavioral health that the sort of long-term exposure to uh, traumatic events, like one you were suggesting there, would have um, some real impacts on, you know, not just uh, personality, but certainly cognition and, and just kind of general outlook. So I, I, I imagine there'd be some interesting data there. I've not seen anything in that space either, but there's this is the kind of fascinating time for uh, neuromodulation as a modality, but also kind of neuroscience in general, where we're bringing some of these really amazing translations, to, uh, you know, hopefully to market, certainly to trial and hopefully to market. Uh, and, that, and that's sort of the um, you know, how, how our trajectory as a company has been, uh, which is really exciting to see. And where did this technology come from? We're actually, uh, six years ago, out licensed from the MIT labs of doctors Ed Boyden and Li Wei Tsai, um, brilliant neuroscientists still at MIT. Uh, and they were, uh, were able to um, come to an agreement to license some of their existing and, and future IP to actually create um, uh, a real-world trial here and, 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 and real-world translation, which is re really exciting. So what got you excited to get into this area or what made you go the, into this area? Well, I, I, had, um, I was uh, in the payer business and then went to academic medicine for about a decade. 
and then was um, came back to the, the payer world to try to think specifically about how to do translation of behavioral health therapeutics and really to kind of uh, lift the evidence-based application of behavioral health. And it has a lot to do with the work I did academically when I, we were looking at the cost and comparative effectiveness of different behavioral health uh, treatments. Um, and, and there's a, a wide variety of effectiveness and I guess a wide variety of cost effectiveness there. Um, so I guess you'd say there's lots of heterogeneity and outcome. And I thought it was um, a really interesting area to focus on. And coming back to the payer space, it was specifically around looking at how to integrate behavioral health into physical medicine and what opportunities there were. Uh, and then to get a, maybe a little bit more narrow, I got introduced to the neuromodulation modality of treatment uh, and look at, looked at that in OCD and depression and some other areas and just really became enamored with it as a modality. Uh, with, it has a relatively clean safety profile. Um, it doesn't have some of the side effects that you see in behavioral health medicine. Um, and it just really appealed to me as um, certainly potentially a first-line therapy. Uh, and then to get to see an application of it like Cognito that's focused on not the easiest of diagnoses, but really starting to say, can we solve something really hard with neuromodulation? And then if so, can you cascade down to sort of adjacent or less severe morbidity? And, and I just thought that's like a, a, an amazing moment and you know, to be in neurology and behavioral health and, and to be in and around this, this modality. And we, we've got a great team and I'm really happy to be uh, be up an early part of it. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. Our guest is Dr. Sean Gregory, Vice President, Health Economics and Market Access for Cognito Therapeutics, a company developing a novel device based approach to treating Alzheimer's disease. You touched on another issue, and obviously, you worked with payers. Um, I, you mentioned earlier this will have to get FDA approved. You know, should yes. it get through the yes. studies, et cetera. But there's been some real hesitancy among payers to pay for digital therapeutics. There are a few FDA approved, not many. Mm -hmm. I think we've discussed yep. some of them on the show. And um, so how do you plan to try to overcome that? Or how should others in the digital therapeutic space look at that and say, wait a second? Yeah. I think there's I, I think it's a really interesting moment. I mean, I mean, just to be to be specific, we are taking a medical device through the FDA. And that's our chosen strategy. And so the the reason why I mention that is the device, the uh, you know, the health effect or the health claim for the device will be based solely on the uh, treatment that the device delivers and not associated with any digital therapeutic or kind of software around it. And so I think in today's regulatory environment, you first have to make a decision if you're a device or if you're a digital therapeutic. And then within that, maybe are you a prescription digital therapeutic? Um, but I think therein lies a lot of the, kind of the heart of the matter. Uh, and um, right now, the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, a, a trade industry group led by Andy Molnar, has um, some draft legislation that they're trying to move through the House to um, authorize CMS or allow CMS to pay for digital therapeutics. And I think that that probably is what it would be, be able to take at a broad-based level um, to be able to have CMS uh, be able to look at these digital therapeutics and, and just like they do devices uh, and certainly a little bit similar to how they, they look at pharmaceutical. So I think that that's important, but 
you know, when I put my payer hat back on and, and reflect on the last several years, looking at, you know, 50, 60, 70 different types of digital therapeutic and innovations, I think the reluctance on the payers has a lot to do with what kind of science and what kind of data does the digital therapeutic uh, manufacturer, if you will, show up with. And I think that that's the challenge that we're trying to overcome here as we introduce a new modality. We, we feel like even a bigger burden to show up with the right kind of parameters that can help that payer make the decision uh, earlier or together with us, as opposed to just showing up and telling them how great our device is without being able to contextualize, this is the episode or this is the value-based arrangement that might make sense. Uh, and I think that that's what is just very tough to do in the, in the pure digital therapeutic space, unless you have a, a pretty well-designed uh, clinical trial where you can show that at least really good effectiveness, if not some efficacy. I think that's what it, that's really what it's going to take to kind of get get over the you know kind of the threshold to even get evaluated at scale. Let me ask you this: Was I incorrect in, in saying this was actually digital therapeutic because it's actually a product? It would look be looked at much more like say an implant device or something like that. Yeah, exactly right. So it, it, in the, the the way we're going through the FDA is is narrowly around the device. I think that you could absolutely see the device situated in maybe a care management program that had some care management level app or 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 digital um, type of experience. But I think that's you know narrowly today. Um, in order to be covered by CMS, we would have to be a device that operates independent of a digital therapeutic. Um, and so today, if you were to see digital therapeutics being used by payers, you know, they're, they're, they're deciding to pay for it uh, above what, you know, what might maybe CMS would pay, let's say, or, or a Medicare Advantage might pay. Mm-hmm. And earlier on, you also mentioned um, one of the big issues you have with, obviously, medications and things like that, or even implants, you're always looking for side effects or poor outcomes, et cetera. What sort of experiences have you seen in the studies so far? I mean, this is one of the most remarkable things uh, that really excited me about the about the opportunity here. And that is, you know, in over 40,000 sessions, we've had no adverse events, uh, no reportable adverse events to the FDA. And, and we're FDA um, breakthrough designated at the moment. Uh, and we just had some safety data that I think is being reported at a conference coming up soon. Um, we do have some side effects. People tend to have, let's say, some dry eyes. You know, a lot of people that are photosensitive or just having that kind of light stimulation for an hour um, might uh, report some dry eyes. Sometimes there's a little bit of um, dizziness for a few minutes. There could be a little bit of tinnitus um, from the, you know, in the from ear, um, and then maybe some uh, mild headaches. And so we think those are pretty good trade-offs especially comparatively in the space, but they're not at a rate that is really alarming from a safety profile perspective. Um, and I think that it, that's great for our audiovisual stimulation, but if you also think a little more broadly about the non-implantable neuromod, whether it's deep TMS or others, that's kind of the same profile. Um, there doesn't seem to be, I think maybe headaches or have a little bit more density in, in some of those uh, treatments, but there doesn't seem to be really an adverse safety issue here. And when you said designated as a breakthrough, so what does that mean? We were able to submit uh, some earlier studies 
um, that gave us some uh, designation by the FDA that there's uh, you know a, a unique potential here, and it also allowed us to have a, a I guess you'd maybe call it like a a, a more um, um, structured approach to the next round of submission for the full uh, for the full approval. Um, you go through a process of of being able to agree upon endpoints and things like that, uh, and I think that we've um, hopefully. We've well, we've designed the hope study to be able to deliver the evidence in that format, uh, and then it also, I believe, gives us some flexibility to do some real-world studies. So we've got some small real-world pilots happening in in certain places as well. It was really based on the safety profile of the device. Got it. And you know, obviously, Alzheimer's one neurodegenerative disease. There are others sort of around that. Some of varying ranges or distance from Alzheimer's. Are there other areas you're looking at? Uh, certainly in in Parkinson's, it looks like there's some there's some evidence. This is evidence being done broadly in neuroscience. Um, there is a finding in our animal preclinical work of some improvements in myelination. And if so, uh, certainly that is a mechanism, a well-known mechanism in, in MS. And so would there be an opportunity there? Um, there's not there's a signal in and around um, tra traumatic brain injury. Uh, where, you know, again, kind of in, in the recovery of that, there's some uh, gamma uh, issues, gamma oscillation issues. And so I think there's certainly an opportunity to build on some of this science. The most exciting thing for us is to uh, be focused on mild to moderate AD and MCI as a, as a precursor state, uh, but really trying to also add to the body of evidence around um, either in preclinical or in small scale studies, you know, what some of these adjacent uh, indications might be. And that that's just, I mean, that to me is really exciting to think that the, about the potential extensibility in some of those other um, morbidities. And these neurodegenerative disorders are just unbelievable. So it'd be nice to see, be able to see some things come through that could actually assist. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that we, uh, this might sound a little corny, but our, our, our phase three study for mild to moderate AD is, is the name of the code name is HOPE. And I think that that's the messaging where in this particular um, sort of devastating disease, is there a little bit of hope early on in the stages where the disease modification might uh, slow the rate of progression uh, and provide a little bit of hope to patients and families? Uh, and I think for our uh, MCI study, we've codenamed it Tempest, which is Latin for time. Uh, and what we think what we think might happen in MCI is, you know, there might be a little bit of, a, uh, of an advanced disease progression and or is there some arresting uh, of, of progression? And that just you know, grants individuals and their families back, you know, a lot of time, uh, you know, precious time, particularly at those life stages. Well, that's fantastic. You know, Sean, I, I know you got a few more hoops you got to jump through to get this product done. Um, but I want to thank you for coming on Pop Health Week and discussing it with us. Fred, a great time. Thanks so much for having me. And back to you, Greg. And that is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Sean Gregory, Vice President, Health Economics and Market Access for Cognito Therapeutics for his time and insights today. Do follow Dr. Gregory and Cognito Therapeutics work on Twitter via at Dr. Sean Gregory and at CognitoTX, respectively and on the web via www.cognitotx.com. 
And finally, if you're enjoying our work at Pop Health Week, please like the show on the podcast platform of your choice. Share with your colleagues and do consider subscribing to keep up with new episodes as they're posted. We stream live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays at 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for you left coasters, 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. Bye now. Bye now.